Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Listening to a bonus episode of On the Tape, and we thought this was important to do. Just a little bit of background. I met Rebecca Jarvis about 16 years or so ago in Englewood Cliffs at the headquarters of CNBC. And although other people might have been first to the Theranos story without question, I think she's been the leading voice and she's been tireless in her work literally now for years. So we wanted to have her on as sort of the epilogue of the story, Danny Moses. Yeah, Guy, I wasn't as lucky as you were to have known her that long, but you did make the introduction to her for me, and I was involved in her GameStop piece, which was a story, obviously, about what happened with GameStop and AMC, et cetera, early last year. With this, I mean, she knew about Theranos as early as 2014 when she was working on just blood testing companies, and she'd heard about this company. I don't think she had claimed there was fraud at that point, but she was aware of it early. She started doing this podcast called The Dropout in early 2019 and stuck with it last episode was episode 19 all the way through. And I will tell you, and she'll talk about this obviously in the episode, but she was one of the people even during the trial, and maybe that's because she had followed it for so long, that actually thought she was going to be found guilty. And she was correct. I mean, she was guilty on four counts of fraud. Three of the other 11 counts were deemed to be mistrial. And the other four fraud, which really had to do with the patients, she was found not guilty. So what's interesting now, and we'll hear this from Rebecca, obviously, in this interview, is what comes next, the Sonny Balwani Trial's coming next, and we won't get a sentencing until after that is done. So a lot more to play out here, but excited to talk to her, obviously, now and fresh off of the heels of this verdict. For me, this speaks to, and I'm sure Rebecca will have some thoughts on this as well, this speaks to money free-flowing, people not doing their due diligence, the emperor has no clothes, all those things come into fruition in all walks of life. So not only in necessarily politics, in some ways in sports. But this is happening right before our eyes in the investing community. And the people that funded or backed or invested in Theranos, they were some of the giants of our industry, which I find fascinating. And I'm sure when you listen to Rebecca's podcast, it gets into that at length. Yes, for sure. And I thought what's also interesting is, Guy, you worked at Drexel. You saw things firsthand. You saw what can happen when a company misbehaves. I'm sure Dan's had instances at places where he's been. We all see it. I mean, I was at a hedge fund that was associated with Morgan Stanley, watching them blow themselves up in subprime mortgage bonds. And we tried to warn them as it was going on. And whatever happened with that stuff, there was not a lot of recourse there. Yes, people lost their jobs. People were humiliated. But it was the bank's balance sheets and shareholders that were lost. So yes, this is a private company, but really interesting to see that. I know Dan has some thoughts. Danny, you bring up all the fraudulent businesses that I've been involved with, as you just mentioned. No, I'm kidding. Um, But, you know, listen, it's really interesting because when we have this conversation with Rebecca, we're talking about potential outcomes for her sentencing. And listen, I worked at Merrill Lynch in 2007 and 2008. There were people 
at that organization and many other banks and many other lenders and stuff that literally did things on a scale a thousand X of the sort of fraud that was committed, or at least that Elizabeth Holmes was just found guilty of, and no one went to jail, nobody. And they're talking about sentences that could be as high as 15 years for her. And I'm not making a case why she should or should not go to jail. I did not follow this as closely as you did. I did listen to multiple episodes of The Dropout, and I think she did a tremendous job. And I think our listeners are going to hear just the level of the depth that she went into in this case. So it'll be really interesting. I took away from the conversation with Rebecca, this thing's not done yet. And her old partner and her old boyfriend, I mean, there's a lot of drama that could happen less. So there's a few more episodes of The Dropout coming on this one. Yeah, listen, this goes back to stuff we talk about on on the tape all the time. And that's for investors themselves to do whatever due diligence that they can do. And if it's a public company, read the annual report, read the 10Qs and 10Ks and find out for yourself. Don't take word of mouth. And I think this Theranos, to the point the guy made, there's a lot of high profile family offices that were involved that if I saw it, oh, can I get in? I mean, people were probably dying to get into that name when they saw the name list of the investors that were there because there is a fake it till you make it attitude. And I think we'll talk about this with Rebecca, but there's a lot of public companies out there that potentially are doing the same type thing, but because they've made it public, they've gotten too big to fail to a degree. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. On this week's OK Computer with Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital, he and I had a little chat about this. And he actually said, and to your point, Danny, a lot of VCs actually were not shown this. And this might have been part of the deception at certain parts of the fundraising rounds because the level of due diligence that VCs are maybe inclined to do versus, let's say, a family office that's pining away to get involved with the next hottest entrepreneur or the next hottest biotech startup. That's one part of the story that'll be really interesting to see how it unfolds, whether this really was a specific fraud going after the dumb money, if you will, in certain instances. It's great to have investigative journalists like Rebecca that not only follow an investigation, but can report on it and dumb it down to people they can understand it. And what she wrapped in her last episode about how the jury thought about it, what they were focusing on, all those things really brought it to light and it made sense. And a lot of these things don't make sense, but this one does. And Unfortunately, I think that this won't have any impact. I think what has more of an impact is a market that goes down, not because of this verdict, but a market starts to go down. People look for people to blame. And that's inevitable at some point that that will happen. But I'm not hopeful that the whole attitude of fake it till you make it. But Dan, you brought up a great point about VC people didn't see it. And I'll tell you this, I've been involved in private companies where I was advising on and the private equity firm does background checks and that maybe not would have uncovered certain things in this case, but they do their work to your point. And so who knows what would have been uncovered there. But what you said, Danny, earlier, and I think they're all important points, but this is an extraordinarily important point. A lot of times people see, well, Warren Buffett bought that stock or these people are invested in that name and they assume sometimes correctly, most of the time correctly, that other people did the work necessary for them. So they don't need to do the work associated with getting into names or making investments. And listen, a lot of times that's true, but in this case, it wasn't true. And it's a good warning sign. It's a really important story going forward. By the way, she was found guilty on four of the 11 counts. Sentencing is to come. But when we come back, we're going to talk to the person that has run with this story now for the last five or six years, Rebecca Jarvis. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, 
and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Rebecca Jarvis is an American journalist. She is the chief business, economics, and technology correspondent for ABC News, the host, creator, and managing editor of Real Biz with Rebecca Jarvis, and the host of the podcasts No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis and the dropout Elizabeth Holmes on trial. RJ, welcome back to On the Tape. So, RJ, this is the part of the, what do they call that in the book at the end? The epilogue, right? Isn't that what they call it? I mean, I'm not sure. I didn't take those fancy classes. But to me, you started this whole story. You were with it the entire time. What does it feel like to finally have the Theranos story effectively in the rearview mirror? It's surreal. I've lived with this story. I've thought about this woman. I've thought about the impact that the story has on our culture, on our world for a really long time. So yeah, it just it's bizarre, but it also does feel just. Tyler Schultz, who is really considered a hero in the story because he came forward at great cost to his life. People will remember he was employed at Theranos and his grandfather was on the board, George Schultz, former Secretary of State. And his relationship with his grandfather crumbled as a result. Anyhow, he tweeted, post the verdict, this is a just outcome. And and that is sort of the way that it feels at this point in time. The, The jury did an excellent job. I've talked to some of the jurors now. They did an excellent job. And they really thought through what the verdict was going to be before they delivered it. So we're going to get into that. But you just completed, I guess, the 19th and final episode, for now at least, of The Dropout. I listened to it last night, actually, when it came out. And you're one of the people actually during the process that thought that she would be found guilty. And you were in the minority. And that was even during the trial, post-trial. Like Maybe people just didn't believe. What made you lean that way during the trial as it was going on that she would be found guilty of anything, of any of these counts? Well, there were a couple of things. One, I thought the government meticulously put together its case. They had dozens of witnesses who were in all these different ranks, all these different spectrums of Elizabeth's universe, talking about what they saw internally. People like Erica Chung, the employee like Tyler Schultz, who flagged with the authorities, with regulators, what she had seen. They had the lab director, Adam Rosendorf. They had all these investors. They had General James Mattis, who was a board member, take the stand. And I also, and this is weird because, you know, you don't talk to jurors during a trial. You never have any kind of exchanges. But I looked at them. I watched them in the courtroom and I watched how they watched the information. And I got this impression that they were really taking it seriously. This was a dense trial. It went on for many, many weeks, but maybe it's my faith in humanity. I don't even know. But I looked at them and I thought, these are people who are paying attention. And if you are paying attention in this courtroom, she is undeniably guilty on some of these charges, at least. So the four counts that she was found guilty on, wire fraud and intent to commit fraud, the three that were mistrialed or hung out there, and then the four that she didn't get convicted of that had to do with patients I think that's right. Can you just walk us through real quick? It's funny because, Danny, you and I talked about this. Guy and I talked about this. I had this feeling that on the patient counts, it was just a harder case to make. So the four counts she was found guilty on 
our investor counts. And that seemed clearer cut when you looked at the fact that there were tapes, there were documents that were brought forth in the courtroom of deception, of things where investors were directly misled and Elizabeth was the connection. She was the front person selling this company to the investors. And that's where she was found guilty. On the patient counts, it was a harder bridge because this isn't a malpractice story. This isn't a case of a medical device gone wrong and she's the doctor. Instead, this was a case about wire fraud and linking her directly to the patients and the intent to defraud the patients was just a tougher legal battle. And that's where she was found not guilty. And then where you have these hung counts, the three where there was a mistrial declared, that was with specific investors. And in our conversations with juror number six, he talked about the fact that behind the scenes in that deliberation room, and of course, these conversations took place after the verdict. You could hear them in the final episode, the verdict. He talked about the fact that there were specific pieces of evidence, tapes that the jury listened to where they just didn't hear Elizabeth directly saying things about the past. And they thought she was saying things about the future. And that, as a result, was okay in their book based on the rules, the guidance that the jury was getting. Because, of course, you can paint a picture of the future as an entrepreneur, as a founder, and it doesn't necessarily have to be accurate because it hasn't happened yet. If you're lying about the past, that's where you're really crossing the line as far as the law is concerned. Juror number six, I think, was the person that you were speaking with. I think it was number six. Mm -hmm. Getting his insights was fascinating. Fascinating. Wayne Kotz is his name, by the way. Yeah. And they were ranking, I guess, the witnesses based upon star ratings. So one, two, three or four stars. And they gave Elizabeth Holmes a two. But at the same time, he's like, yeah, she was somewhat believable, but she was very rigid. And we gave her a two. And then they ranked three and four. So I thought that was really interesting. Just the mindset of the jury that was really involved. And I think people that read that start to realize how a jury can come together on a very complex issue. So I'm sure you had more offline discussions with him and how they chose the foreman in the process and all that. It's fascinating. Wayne Cotts, and we're so grateful to him for sharing the insights of taking us inside that deliberation room and what happened in this point that you made about the star system. So Elizabeth got the lowest star ranking, two out of anyone. No one got a one. General Mattis got a four. Adam Rosendorf, the lab director, got a four. What fascinated me is that in terms of her credibility, then the jury did not see her credibility nearly as high as the credibility of others. And yet at the end of the day, they did believe that she believed that her technology was going to work at some point, that she believed in her dream and they had difficulty. They didn't take pleasure in handing down a guilty verdict. And they looked at the fact that this was a human being. So I think it makes you less cynical, hopefully, about how juries do their job. And it, it, it makes you feel a degree of pride in the system, I guess. There was a couple hot takes over the last few days, and I'm just curious to get your sense for this, is that when you think about the U.S. and incarceration rates and how we do things, there were some that were making the argument that maybe she shouldn't go to jail. She's disgraced. No one's ever going to give her money again. Her life is ruined. And I'm just curious what through your reporting, when you talk to probably some investors, you talk to people that were hurt by this, what's your sense for that? Does she deserve to go to jail for 15 years? Well, the legal experts I've spoken to, and I pulled a handful of legal experts and the people who have been throughout the podcast with us, Dan Abrams at ABC News, 
they believe it's somewhere between three and 10 years. And if, by the way, you've got Sonny Belwani, her co-conspirator, their cases were severed at the start of this, and he was once her boyfriend and her COO as well at the company. So he's going to see his trial or he might take a plea deal. In the context of that, she could do herself some favors, perhaps, by snitching. And this is how our legal system works. You get points if you help out on somebody else's case. So there is a possibility that she will see less prison time as a result of that. You said something, though, Dad. I can't be sure that she's not going to get money in the future. I mean, I've seen the way our system works, and I think there are plenty of examples of people who maybe they don't go out and commit fraud, but there are examples time and time again of people who fail and get money again in the future. So I don't think there's a certainty there. Michael Milken was one of those, right, that went to jail and then came back and built a huge toy company. On that, can you explain why her trial was first? I should know that, but why she went before Sonny? Was that up to the prosecution? Yeah, the government had a lot of say in that. The reason that their trials very likely were severed from one another was because of the allegations that she brought forward at trial. When she took the stand, she made these allegations against Sonny Belwani that there was physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in their relationship. And these are claims, by the way, that Sonny Belwani has firmly denied. He didn't take the stand in this trial. He said he would take the fifth if he was pushed to take the stand here. And so because of those allegations, the decision was made that they had to have severed trials because that was going to be a part of her case. Now, ultimately, the defense did not, in their closing arguments, spend time on these abuse allegations. And we don't know why, because they're not talking, they're not saying why, but there's a very strong possibility, according to the legal experts I've spoken to, that those allegations will actually play heavily when there's a sentencing hearing, that her defense will argue that this is an extenuating circumstance that was happening in the background, and they will push for a lighter sentence as a result of that. All right. So, RJ, here you go. This is how my mind works. You were on the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes things long before 99% of the media world even knew who Elizabeth Holmes was. Now, all of a sudden, over the last six months, everybody's into Theranos thing. How does that make you feel? That would piss me off. Listen, it's <laughs> inevitable. I totally get it. It's the way the world works. But this was your, in some ways, this was your baby. Now everybody's taking ownership. From that point of view, how does that make you feel? Honestly, I like that more people are paying attention. I think we should all be asking deeper questions on all of these stories. And I think a lot about this one. The last time we were here, we were talking about GameStop and meme stocks, and it's not like connected in a direct one-to-one sense, but I struggle not to find the connection between this story and a lot of the stories of our time, and I feel like it's a parable for our time. It feeds right into the ecosystem. I think the funding, the fact that she was able to raise almost a billion dollars from investors on a product that did not work is not only because she's an outlier, but because we're in a system where when money is valueless, where there's no cost of losing, money just flies around and people don't ask as serious of questions as they should be asking. And when you look at where her timing hit, 
She started her company out of Stanford, 19 years old, in the mid-2000s. But it was around 2009, the financial crisis, she could not get money. She struggled to get money. Her boyfriend at the time, Sonny Belwani, came in with a loan, bailed her out. And from that point forward, that's when the money was starting to come in from investors. And I do just think that it is a struggle for me to not look at this story as an allegory about money just being everywhere looking for a home and not asking a lot of questions. What's really interesting about that is there are a lot of companies now in the electric vehicle space that have gone public without a product. And if she had been able to go public with what was going to be, what she promised to be, she actually would be potentially in a much better situation. And there is a fine line between public companies committing fraud and private companies committing fraud because no one asks questions if a public company stock is doing well. It's when the public company stock goes down that you'll only start to get the questions. I was fascinated with Draper's comment. Wouldn't really give you a verbal comment. I guess he gave you a written comment following this guilty verdict because he had made comments, I guess, five years ago, four or five years ago when the accusations first started to fly that, you know what, it's not true, product ingenuity, and that's what Silicon Valley is all about. So talk about the culture, I guess, of Silicon Valley still is there anything to reconcile here? Or is there going to be any hell to pay? It doesn't seem like there will be able to come and go, but I'd love to get your thoughts there. So Roger McNamee, I talked to him as part of this podcast. He was an investor in Silicon Valley for many years. He's been very outspoken about Facebook. He was an early investor in Facebook. And the point that he made was basically that for real change to happen in Silicon Valley, like the whole thing has to crash. An outcome, a verdict like this doesn't ultimately change how people's behavior works. Now, that is not to say that Silicon Valley is filled with crooks and people who are lying and especially backwards looking at their numbers. I do think that you have to have an audacious goal and you have to make investors believe that you have that and that you can fulfill that goal in order to get money in Silicon Valley from what I've seen. In terms of a real reckoning, I don't see this being that. I do think that If you are a founder and you're thinking, I'm going to play into this and I'm going to play fast and loose with the numbers, you probably are thinking twice on a verdict like this. And maybe if you're an investor, you feel a degree of security that the U.S. government can take on a case like this, prosecute it, and it's dense, but the jury will ultimately side with the government. And that's going to give you some degree of confidence that you can invest in the future. Rebecca, do you think this is a situation, and it's been the situation for 10 years now, at least now, there's too much capital chasing, too few good deals. And what does this mean, in your opinion, for investments, or at least VC investing in health tech going forward? Because again, we've just been through this period with all of the mRNA technology, and you think about how much money was just thrown at this. And my thought was during COVID, some of the best and brightest minds are going to be attracted to health tech. But this now puts us at the forefront again and how easy it is to really defraud talking about doing things that are really monumental that haven't been done before. The question that I have here is not so much are investors going to be afraid of investing in biotech or health tech because of Elizabeth Holmes. The question I think that I ask is where's the surer bet mRNA takes a lot of money. Health tech, biotech, that world, it takes a lot of money to pull that off. To pull off a cute consumer app that you can get widespread adoption of and 
consumption of and pull off a really high valuation pretty quickly doesn't take as much. And I don't know how you solve for that ultimately. You basically solve for it, I guess, with altruism, maybe. But I've thought a lot about how Elizabeth originally gained attention. And I think part of how she garnered so much media attention was because she was an outlier in many ways. She was a woman. And also, her goal was not just about, at least on the surface, making loads of money. It was truly about revolutionizing healthcare and making the world a better place. And I wonder, I ask myself a lot, if that has to do partially with why people didn't ask as many questions. Because if she was out there hawking a consumer app, I don't know that people would have been as comfortable looking the other way on certain things. Just to tie a bow on that, a lot of these investors were not biotech slash Silicon Valley investors. They were word of mouth, family offices, big people, and they were impressed with her. She obviously put on a good show, so to speak. And so Silicon Valley wasn't necessarily duped here. It was other people, very famous people, very highly regarded people, and that kind of fed on itself. And I think people, we always talk about on our show, on the tape, read the Q's and K's, do your own work, look into it. But there were so many mixed signals coming, right? Like Walgreens actually did sign up for the product. They were putting it in their stores and so forth. So that was validation from one end. Shame on them for putting that in their stores to begin with, with not validating the product. But what are your thoughts on that and kind of what the makeup was of the investor base here? You make a really good point, And it's one that most people in Silicon Valley will make, which is the VC biotech community largely passed on her. She got early investments from Larry Ellison and Don Lucas and some of the big names inside of Apple, not Steve Jobs, but some big names inside of Apple put money with her. Tim Draper put money with her. But by and large, it was the Rupert Murdochs of the world, the Walton family, the DeVos family, the Cox family who put money with her. So this was family offices. This was not sophisticated of the degree of biotech venture investors. And some people will say, that's just a red flag. If you're thinking about investing and you're looking at a private company, if the experts aren't putting money with a company, that's a sign. Many would argue also another sign would be look at her board of directors. She didn't have those experts on her board of directors either. Instead, she had a very prestigious group of former generals and secretaries of state. So in my opinion, and again, not that it matters, but you should get the first interview with her in this post-trial era of Theranos. Now, if you do get it and you're deserving of it, what is your instinct first question? It's a fascinating story. You've been on top of it now forever. What's your first question? I think the question I would ask her is, why do you think you're here? And the reason I would ask her that question is because a lot of the other questions that you can ask and that I would ask in an interview, at this point, I don't really think there's an answer that any of us would get from those questions that would be satisfying. But I would like to understand in her thinking, in her perception of the world, why she thinks it all went down like this. And what voice do you think she would do? Do you think she'd do that? Or you think she, if you had to guess what tone of voice she would use, which one would it be? Here's what I'll say. She uses the deep voice and that's the voice that you mostly saw of her on stage. She maintained that in the courtroom, but it was lighter. You have to imagine there were three years between the indictment and the actual trial. And she had the best of the best attorneys. And you have to imagine 
that focus on the trial meant that they really thought about this. How's her presentation going to look? She wasn't wearing the black turtlenecks, the Steve Jobs look in court. She was wearing pretty plain, but sophisticated suits and things like that in the courtroom. So you think about all of this stuff, presentation that comes into play. And there's this whole garden industry of thinking about juries and how are juries going to be responsive to things. On that point about the jury, one other thing that came out of our conversation with Wayne Cotts, juror number six, was he said that the allegations that she made at trial about Sonny Belwani and the abuse that he has denied that those didn't really come up in deliberations and that they didn't feel that that was pertinent to the charges at hand. And that's, to me, really interesting because you have to believe that there was a lot of attention given to whether or not to include those accusations in this trial. And again, to that idea about sentencing, maybe somewhere there was a feeling that we're going to put this out there. It might be our very best defense in this case. But the most important thing is that with sentencing, maybe it will afford us a lighter sentence if this goes in the way of guilty. And we won't get a sentence until we get any type of resolution with... With Sonny, yeah. Mm-hmm. Question for you. Whoever did the music for this was honestly, it made it. Like, I got the chills with it. My second question is, is that person or group doing the music for your Hulu special, which I want to talk about now. It's going to come out in March. And were you not able to officially do the Hulu until there was some type of resolution with this verdict? Was that what was waiting upon or was it coming anyway? Can you talk about your Hulu special? Okay, well, shout out to Evan Viola, who did the music on The Dropout. He's excellent. He was our editor. He scored things as well. He just did an amazing job. We originally chose Evan in the first season of The Dropout. And at that point, I had never worked with a podcast editor really at that point. And there were a handful of options, but he was the one who could do the music. He could write his own music. And I love music. I play around with my phone with GarageBand and I'm always like making songs. And I just was like, I want somebody who really knows music because to me, that background really makes a piece. So anyway, very happy with that. Hulu is coming out in March and the stars have just kind of aligned in terms of the timing of all of these things. The Series got pushed many times because of COVID shooting the series. Amanda Seyfried is absolutely amazing. I went and saw the shooting of a couple of scenes in California a few months back and got to see her performing. And I got chills when I walked in. The scene that she was shooting was a scene that I visualized in my own mind as I reported on it. And then just to see her do it, it was like they had just taken it right out of my head and it was happening in front of me, which was really cool. And she's amazing. So the timing of it is incredible. It's coming out starting early in March. And it is possible that we're going to have a sentence for Elizabeth, like right around the time of this series beginning. Uh, Certainly, if we don't have her sentenced at that time, you will know that the Sonny Belwani trial is happening at that time. Well, I don't know if you're allowed to win like Academy Awards for this shit or what, but you, I know you're laughing, but I'm telling you, you know, the way I feel you absolutely should win something. And I know you have, but you should win more. So, and by the way, all this is going to make a great episode of bull for you CBS fans out there. Cause you can just see that whole thing taking place. RJ, we love having you on. Be sure to listen to the dropout Elizabeth Holmes on trial. This is Dan's favorite part wherever you get your podcasts, which is makes me crazy because I don't get my podcast, period. But you should. 
Thanks, RJ, for stopping by. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you, guys. I love chatting with you. Love what you're doing. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.